Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good afternoon from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and I are here with Don Parker from the National Cotton Councils. Don, special guest. He's been in town for, I guess, if you've been around for several days now, but we had a meeting this morning and had the opportunity to catch him for a podcast this afternoon. So, Don, we appreciate you taking Thank time out of your schedule. Thank you for the opportunity. Appreciate it. I, I think he was here last week, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because we had actually yeah. talked about that, and then it just didn't. Yeah, didn't didn't quite work out. That was a busy tour last week. Y'all, yeah. y'all didn't have time to do anything extra. So I, I thought I was going to miss Tom. I don't I don't pay attention and, to calendars uh, this time of the year. Texted Tom. Tom didn't text <laughs> me back. I thought, well, he's gone off on some plant pathology emergency. But we got him back. Tom, thanks for stopping what you were doing and coming and talking Appreciate with us this it. afternoon. Hopefully I'll miss the rain that's coming. But they've changed the forecast already. It was supposed to rain all week. Now it's not going to rain all week. Yeah, I noticed that this morning. Yeah. So that's a good thing. So Don, no, but it may change back tomorrow. Oh, we get or in five more minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so Don, have you listened to our podcast? I haven't. I'm all right. So we always like to kind of start off with a kind of a crazy, kooky question just to get folks rolling. So we were sitting over there this morning in that meeting, and I thought, man, what am I going to ask Don for my podcast question? And that we had that Zoom meeting going. I know a lot of the folks you talk with on a regular basis, they've kind of been shut down from work for quite a while now. So how many Zoom meetings or just web meetings do you think you do in the course of a month? I don't know. During during the height of when COVID first broke out, out of all of our staff, I was uh, number one in the amount of time on Zoom. So uh, it's been a lot. Uh, it's really it's it's kind of a unique the way that instantly everybody just adopted the couldn't virtual do meetings. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. And then all of a sudden we were completely capable of doing it. Absolutely, and and <laughs> doing it constantly. Yeah. But what I hated about it the most was that used to people would sit in their office and something would come up and they'd write it down and say. I'm going to make me a note so that we can, next time we meet, we can bring this up. And whenever Zoom, everybody was using Zoom so much, they quit waiting until to bring it up. They get one idea, they'd send you a Zoom invitation to try to let, let's go ahead and cover this topic. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I notice about it is, and I'm as guilty as anybody, I always turn the camera off. And so if you're having a conversation, then you don't get to see the reaction of people, you know, and, and not shock reaction or anything like that, but just how something that somebody says is taken in by the group. So I think you definitely lose some on the communication. I know Tom hates it. Tom's not even going to comment on it. I, a comment that popped into my head, and then I just decided to probably back off of that comment. I, I don't use the camera, and I try to leave it on mute the entire time. I, I will have to admit that, it comes in convenient, but I would agree with you that there's a whole lot of communication you lose because you're not sitting in the room together and people just naturally have body language that goes along with whatever they're saying. And so there's a whole lot of the message that uh, you can't pick up with Zoom that you do whenever you're sitting in a room with somebody. Yeah, and a guy like you that literally does need to be in multiple places at one time. I know that's probably been an asset to some degree for you yeah, in, in definitely. your job. 
lots of our listeners will probably know the name Don Parker, but there will probably be some that won't necessarily know who you are and what you do. Why don't you give us a little bit of a background, Don, on wh- where you came from before you started at the Cotton Council? Because I think that's important. Yeah, I, I finished my degrees at Mississippi State and was fortunate enough to be employed by Mississippi State for 10 years uh, in 50% research, 50% extension. That was during the time where that you also got bonus appointments. So I taught class, and they put me over the Brown Long ex- Experiment Station there for a while. A great, broad experience with, with the university and loved working with all the people at the university and in the state. It was, it was a fabulous time. Got an opportunity to go to the National Cotton Council, trying to focus in on pest management issues for the cotton industry. And about two years ago, uh, my former boss retired, and they asked me to step into that slot as vice president of technical services. So I'm about two years in now on the vice president of technical services, and still haven't given up any of my other responsibilities. <laughs> You're doing more with less. Yes. We all are. Exactly. <laughs> that seems to be the continuing motto moving into the future. And then you, most people, those that will recognize you, will remember that you were an entomologist and are still well-grounded in the world of entomology and interact with all the entomologists here and throughout the mid-southern United States, which I think is extremely important, having somebody in your role with a background in pest management and understands how necessary that is for cotton farmers and for row crop production in general. Yeah, you know, Tom, the extension people across the cotton belt are quite unique. And many people forget the, the power of the extension service in the cotton belt. It's very unique because as you move up into some of the Midwest and others, they really have lost that close connect with the extension service. And that's one of the things that in my capacity, I'm so glad that I had that previous extension experience and had all those contacts because I shoot an email and text messages out to y'all all the time saying, hey, I need a little bit of input here. Uh, and that that is great the way that in, across the cotton belt we still have that strong extension component and i thank y'all very much for that well we appreciate those kind words don tom you said that you identified don as an entomologist i think there's a group of people that may not have even known he was an entomologist at one point <laughs> would say he was a weed scientist because he's very well versed in my interactions with him as well well and i think most of the people that work with those groups that we interact with on a regular basis in the cotton world are extremely well-versed in most of the disciplines within cotton as a general umbrella. And I think that's really helpful because he does interact with those of us that are plant pathologists and do nematology work as well. We typically sit down with him at Beltwide pretty much on an annual basis and go through what's going on in the whole regulatory realm when it comes to dealing with Uh, seed applied fungicides or seed applied nematicides or any of those things and I think that's important to still have somebody that has that experience and exposure and has dealt with extension in the past because I think you know Don's right in his statement that we are still so strong and well grounded with our clientele and our client base in the southern United States and across the cotton belt more specifically. And I was very fortunate as an undergraduate 
Mississippi State had the um, Ag Pest Management Program where that you were you learned entomology, plant pathology, and weed science. That program was fantastic, and that that really gave me a broad experience, that, you know, a broad understanding of more, and it's really helped me in my career. Don, tell folks about the National Cotton Council, maybe how it's organized, and then what its function is. You'd probably be surprised to know that its origin was highly influenced by Delta Council. Really, in about 1939, there was some disagreements between some of the sectors of the cotton industry. And a group of gentlemen got together and said, uh, we need to unite the whole industry, get everybody on the same page. And it's during a time of a little bit of tension, you know, they, they were not sure it could happen. And somebody said, well, if anybody can do it, Oscar Johnson can. And so they approached Mr. Oscar Johnson, and he thought it was a fantastic idea and said, yeah, let's do it. Now, where was he? He was, I believe he was in Memphis. So they, in 1939, they started the National Cotton Council that united all seven segments of the cotton industry. It's very different from any other producer organization in that it it's not just producers. It is the entire cotton industry from the producer to the Jenner warehouse, seed crushers, merchants, cooperatives, all seven se- and textiles, all seven segments uh, merged together. And each segment has veto power whenever something gets to the board level so that no one segment's really dominating or running over anybody, you know. So they organized a very, it's a very complex uh, type of, of government of the, the organization, but it's very effective. It's been lasting for years. And it brings about that consensus of the entire industry to support policy on behalf of the whole cotton industry. So it is a, a voluntary member organization, and the National Cotton Council focuses in on the policies as dictated annually by our membership. And every policy is reviewed annually, and either it's revised or if it's been accomplished, it's removed, or if something new comes in, it's added. But it just doesn't build. You know, every year it's cleaned up and, and refocused. And then that policy gives staff like me kind of our marching orders of what are the um, objectives for us to do this year. And it's the policy arm of the industry is kind of where it comes to. Since you work for National Cotton Council, is it too early to compare and contrast what National Cotton Council does compared to Cotton Incorporated? Because I think that's perfect. There's typically some confusion there between the two organizations because they essentially do two different things, but they both support cotton. Yeah. At one point, a group of the producers felt like that we needed a little bit more focus in on some research initiatives and that uh, they needed to to contribute their part and they come up with the idea of a checkoff program and once they came up with that idea they had staff to go around the country to all the states and to try to promote the idea and have votes to pass a referendum to have a checkoff program but the national cotton council you can imagine back at that time 
had some very powerful, political powerful people in, engaged in it. So there was a uh, restriction that, you know, congressional people didn't want the policy arm of the industry to have control of that much money. <laughs> so there was a restriction that the cotton board would be the ones that would handle the checkoff program and the cotton board contracts cotton incorporated to manage the research and education program for the industry. And so cotton incorporated's first staff was about half of the staff of national cotton council at that time, but it became two separate entities, but both entities still are focused in on the better, the, the improvements for the cotton industry one handles policy, one handles uh, research and education from checkoff program. So if you compare that to some other commodities, every commodity, at least that, that we're involved with, they have adv- advocacy groups and then they have promotion boards. Some those are together and some they're more separate or there's separate entities. Just to put it kind of in local terms, Cotton Incorporated is kind of like your I think it's called the Mississippi Cotton State Support Committee. That's right. So that would be like the promotion board. Yeah. They have the checkoff program. Part of those funds will stay within the control of the state from those checkoff programs. Um, And then they will meet with the state people to help determine what focus those funds will be used on. Part of those funds go back into the national pot for them to manage how much is focused in on, on different activities. So they do fund a tremendous amount of, of research support across the, uh, the whole cotton belt. The Cotton Council is more of advocacy group. Most of our, you know, several of our staff are registered lobbyists. And so our staff, you know, we have a, an office in Cordova. We have an office on DuPont Circle in D.C., and we have staff in D.C. that just about stay on the hill uh, trying to make sure that trade issues are uh, addressed like they should be uh, to make sure that we don't have concern with regulatory issues, whether it be for uh, labor, whether it be some uh, issues around some insurance programs, the farm bill, our staff will be uh, highly engaged in in the development of every farm bill. Um, and then it may be something like uh, something may be going on at the Geneva Convention, and our CEO is typically there uh, for that as well. So it's really the that umbrella for the whole industry that, that looks at all the regulatory policy uh, type issues to address those. But oftentimes... You need, like, for, for me, my focus is mostly on the production side of, uh, of things, dealing with EPA and APHIS and uh, regulatory issues. And a lot of times I need data that, that, that helps me uh, have a good case on the science behind what I'm, what I'm trying to advocate for. And that's where we are fortunate that we have a very close working relationship with Cotton Incorporated um, so that I can reach out to them and, and uh, we, we can work very close together to make sure 
that the research is feeding the policy to make sure that the the industry moves in the direction of the best science. Like the United Soybean Board and then the... American Soybean Association. Yeah, the American Soybean Association. You don't ever confuse them. No. But 20 years ago, I might not have known that Cotton Incorporated and the National Cotton Council were two different things. Y'all do work together on, on a lot of stuff. But, yeah. Uh, and, and we end up interacting with both entities pretty much at the same time. Don, before we started, we talk just a second about sustainability and love it or hate it. That word is kind of entrenched in modern agriculture. I think we could debate the nuances of the definition of, I think it's a very functional word. And then as a concept, maybe it's a little bit more nebulous, but I know the cotton council has a sustainability effort. Why don't you describe that program to our listeners? Yeah. And it's another great example of, the close working partnership with the Cotton Council and Cotton Incorporated. Both are very engaged in helping get the our sustainability program up and running and moving forward. It's now, you know, it's on it's as its own entity, the US Cotton Trust Protocol. And you can Google it and see uh, details about it. Now, you know, really where a lot of this came from is where a lot of times we think that there are groups that are after us on pesticide issues. Well, the fashion industry was under attack as well. And they had groups that were after them saying that they're the big polluters and and they're not sustainably sourcing. And they made all kinds of claims and everything that created a lot of market problems for them. Because of those market problems those groups started talking about what, where are sustainable sources of, of commodity or products for garments. Um, the National Cod Council had already been engaged since 2015 working with a group called Field to Market that just measures some, uh, some uh, very basic uh, scientific estimates of land, you know, amount of land use per, per unit of uh, production, water, soil preservation. And so we've been able to see that we we had been improving our sustainability because through those metrics, we were steadily doing better and better each year. But on the global level, there was a few more components that was being sought in a sustainability message. So our group went through and tried to identify what those components are, uh, put together uh, a questionnaire to help address those or to at least capture them. And this is the critical thing in, in this. What we realized is that U.S. agriculture is sustainably produced. And the only problem is the, the brands and retailers are wanting documentation. They're wanting evidence to show it. And we have never done, we've never captured that before. And so by doing this, these questions, it's very simple questions that shows all the laws and regulations that U.S. cotton production has to adhere to that puts us above and beyond most nations and shows that we meet those sustainability qualifications. And you don't have to do anything different. 
it's not going to rule somebody out because it's the basic way that we produce cotton in the United States meets those sustainability criteria. So we were able to get this put together to where that we producers can enroll in the protocol. But on the same time, we went ahead and got approval by some of these textile groups that are looking for sustainable sources. And one of the most difficult ones, probably the German Textile Exchange. U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol has been accepted on the German Textile Exchange. So if you look at Levi's and several other brands of retailers, they're already saying that what they will use only sustainably sources by 2050. We want to make sure that U.S. cotton is on that list. And the way to do it is to be enrolled in this protocol. Brands and retailers have to pay a fee to join the protocol. But if you look on the website, you'll see they are joining like crazy because they want access to this verified sustainable cotton and they want the data to back it up. I think it's close to 200 brands of retailers that are signing, signed up. We're working with some of them trying to show how that cotton moves through because we have a permanent bale identification tag on cotton bales. So we're going to, we're showing that we can track that cotton through the system to that garment. And then any claims they make can only be on the percentage of U.S. cotton. I think that cotton farmers, you know, who it was cotton farmers that led this initiative, got this all started. I think it's another credit to the cotton industry that they're out on the cutting edge. They're ahead of the game. We've already got a program in place. We just need more producers to sign up. The worst thing that could happen to us is for someone to ask for 10 million bales of protocol cotton and not have enough producers signed up to verify we've got it. But um, it's going very well, and, and I appreciate all the producers who have enrolled. And any that haven't, please do. Uh, give us a call, and we'll help you out. Don, if I'm a grower in Mississippi, I think the long-term advantage to or incentive to what you're describing is pretty obvious. Yeah. 2050, the, the year you quoted. But what in the short term, what's my incentive for joining oh, the yeah. protocol? Oh, yeah. I get to ask that at a lot of the meetings. You know, they want to know, you know, is it going to give me more money right now? No. Can I guarantee that it will in the future? I can't guarantee it, no. But I can guarantee if it fails and we don't have that sustainability program whenever those companies make that switch, they're only going to be going to one list, and that list is sustainably sourced list. And if we're not on that list, which without this protocol process, we won't be. If we're not on that list, they're going to go to those countries that are on that list. And there are like Brazil and some others that are working very hard to make sure that they're on that list, trying to make sure they secure and expand their market. I think right now, U.S. cotton industry is in a very good position to make sure that not only we hold our market share, but we could expand it. So you said give you a call 
is that the easiest way to have someone enroll in the program, or is there a they can go online to the, portal? They can go online, and the questions are are there, and um, they can they can go through and answer those questions. If they have some questions though that they seek help, there's uh, it's, it's a dashboard system. There's help that's provided that they can they can get information on on the site. Uh, for additional help on that. So we, we want to make sure we get everybody enrolled in it. We also have reached out to consultant associations, and several consultant associations have kind of embraced it, and some consultants are doing the registration for, for their producers. Uh, so we've got several different avenues going. There will be a, a training room at Beltwide this year uh, before the consultants conference starts. So it's, it's you know, we're re- reaching out every avenue we can to spread the word and, and make sure that we get everybody uh, enrolled. And, you know, who knows the direction it may take off. There may be money. I can't guarantee that. But whenever you look at what all is going on, it's going to be hard for some of these companies to find cotton that can lay down the documentation and show the sustainability and meet the same standards that the U.S. cotton is produced at. And that's, to me, that's a very exciting thing to keep in mind is compare us to somebody else that's big in cotton. And when you start thinking about those, who's it? going to be China, India. I think I'd stack our standards up against them. And two, it's encouraging that, like you said, a lot of the stuff we're already doing, it's just, a ma- it's just a matter of documenting the things that we're already doing. That's it. When the barrier to entry is that low, it's always encouraging. Well, and I'll try, to, I'll try to look up that link and, and include it in the description of the episode. Whenever you talk about something new, I think there's always that little standoffish about, you know, I don't want to have to do more or do something new or add something to my production practices. So Mm -hmm. if someone just has to document what they are doing, I think that's extremely important, not only for that farmer and that area where they are farming, but then for cotton as a a general fiber crop moving forward. We're steadily trying to look at ways to make it faster and more efficient and less for the for the producers to have to actually do to try to make sure they maintain their enrollment. You know, once they get enrolled, their bales are automatically uploaded into the system that keeps track of all these bales. And so automatically those bales then became become acknowledged as protocol bales. And so it's it's an incredible system that's already built. Now we're just trying to get everything flowing through that system. Well, very good. We appreciate the time, Don. That's It's always good to sit down and discuss some of these things with you because I think they're becoming more important as well. And it's nice to have, you know, a former face that's an advocate for, for cotton farmers and for cotton in general. So we really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you all very much for the opportunity. You know, and, and the listeners should know you're, you're pretty easy to get hold of. And if somebody has any specific questions, you know, track one of us down to get in touch with you. And we'd be more than happy to help. Thanks, Don. Thank you all. 
The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.